Hello, everyone. Welcome to the World of NP podcast, informative platform for healthcare consumers and providers, where your voices matter. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Christine Taharan. I am a nurse practitioner with a Doctor of Nursing Practice degree. Also, I am an attorney. At the War of NP, we are committed to raising public awareness on nurse practitioner profession and how the nurse practitioner's role impact patient care and how nurse practitioner could impact policy making in the local and national level. Today, our special guest is Dr. Cynthia Genovo. In today's episode, we will discuss Dr. Genovo's achievement, her contribution to advance nursing practice, and her advocacy work as a nurse practitioner. Dr. Genovo is a nurse practitioner with a Doctor of Nursing Practice degree from Duke University. She is a published author, an advocate for her patient, nurse practitioner, and the nurse practitioner profession. Dr. Genova, welcome to the World of NP podcast. Could you please tell us more about you and about your nursing background? Oh, thank you. Thank you, first of all, for having me. I am very honored to discuss the wonderful world of nurse practitioners because we have so much to offer. So thank you for that platform. I started as a nurse at the age of 21. I graduated from Riverside Community College, which is in the Inland Empire. I actually still live in the Inland Empire. And I began my career as an RN at that age and fell in love with critical care. I actually worked at many local hospitals within the Inland Empire. Since then, I've continued forward with my career. I've moved on from getting a bachelor's. I started teaching. Cal States. I love clinicals. And so I really thrived teaching other nurses critical thinking skills. A lot of my students actually went on into critical care, whether it was pediatrics or adults. So it was really exciting to see them thrive. I decided to go back and get my master's degree. I got that with a dual focus as a clinical nurse specialist at UCLA. I graduated in 2009 as predominantly a nurse practitioner. I started practicing. I have had such an exciting career once I graduated as a nurse practitioner. I went straight into cardiac surgery and delved into the critical care, cardiac surgery, and And then my role just evolved. It started to evolve and I was asked to go into the operating room and the operating room was really new to me, especially as a nurse practitioner who just really just practiced predominantly in the critical care unit. I was lucky enough to have a really strong mentor to support me, especially in the operating room, especially when the world is so new. I actually went through all these hurdles to become what they call a RN first assist, because in California, you have to be an RNFA in order to be considered a first or second assist in the operating room. And then I fell in love with it. It was a completely different world. It was exciting. I did everything from trauma to delivering C-sections. In the Inland Empire, uh, there was such a huge shortage of assistance because usually the guidelines are that other surgeons assist each other, but then it became so hard for other surgeons to assist each other because then it took time from their practice. So there was only very far and few in between nurse practitioners besides PAs that were essentially practicing autonomously in these different institutions in the Inland Empire. 
the people that were <clears throat> practicing as a nurse practitioner for first assist were very few and a lot of them were in academia. So I ended up just really being a trailblazer and met very few people who were doing it. And lo and behold, I ended up with this, this uh, practice where I had a lot of contracts with the insurance companies. I was billing independently with my own Medicare, Medi-Cal contracts, my own insurance contracts. And I became the first assist in predominantly in the Inland Empire. And I just, people knew who I was, my name grew. And then I started meeting other people and I helped mentor other nurse practitioners to become first assist because the pie was so big and I just couldn't get to all of it. Now you'll see a lot of nurse practitioner first assist in the hospitals, helping a lot of the surgeons out. That's been a pretty exciting role. What does a first assist do? First assist is a, an RN first assist is, of course, you have your RN. And essentially, you are the person across the operating table to the surgeon. There is only a small criteria to have another surgeon across the table from you, and that is in cardiac surgery when a patient is on bypass. Anytime a patient is on bypass, then which is cardiopulmonary bypass, then you have to have, per Title 22, another surgeon assisting you. When a patient is off bypass, then you can have a physician assistant, you can have an RNFA, you can have an NP first assist to be across the table. What you essentially do is the role is you're really assisting the surgeon with suturing, identifying organs, a lot of retraction. There's a lot of making sure that there's hemostasis, like another set of eyes and starts from the beginning of the case to the end of the case. So it's exciting. And, and I think that more and more nurse practitioners are, are delving into that role. They utilize them a lot, especially in trauma. If you had to have two trauma surgeons in an operating room for every operation, well, that's a lot of manpower, especially if you're a trauma center and you're running two, three rooms at a time with a massive trauma, you have to be able to utilize your resources. And so that's where we've stepped in to help support the surgeons in that role. That is great. Do you work mainly as an RN first assist or you also work as a nurse practitioner? Right now, I predominantly work as a nurse practitioner. I was doing the RNFA role for about a good five, six years, but then my role just continued to evolve. Then I've stepped out of the operating room and I have now done, I'm teaching more, I'm into leadership. So it's just been as your roles evolved, I'm very involved in the community within my own practice organization. You have to divvy up your time. <laughs> and so I think I've done my fair share of passing the torch to those new nurse practitioners that want to be in the operating room. Where are you currently teaching? I currently teach as adjunct faculty at California Baptist University, which is in the Inland Empire. I've been there over three years now, and it's been great. I predominantly do clinicals. I love clinicals. I love teaching clinicals. I think that is definitely my strongest attribute. And then this semester, I've actually started teaching a lecture, Advanced Pharmacology, and it's been pretty fun. So I, again, I've been evolving at that uh, level as well. It's again, my role has just been growing and I, I have a tendency to say, you know what, this is a great opportunity. Who knows where this is going to lead me? And I could never go wrong with learning something new. So that's what I'm doing now. That's fabulous. A little bit earlier, you mentioned that you're also a clinical nurse specialist. Yes. When I graduated from UCLA in 2009, they offered a lot of dual programs. 
So a lot of the dual programs, you could be a clinical nurse specialist, you can be, and that really encompasses a lot of the policies, procedures, education, leadership roles. And so I, I did that as a dual program and because it was offered, but there was plenty of other opportunities. I could have done pediatrics, I could have done an MBA, I could have done Oh boy, there's just so many opportunities that UCLA offered at the time. And I think that the, sh- the short, I think what my friends were doing were the CNS, because we figured, you know what, this is where we're at as an advanced practice uh, registered nurse, and we're going to utilize these skill sets. And no matter what we do, some of my, my cohorts are not practicing as nurse practitioners. They practice as clinical nurse specialists because they really like the policy procedures, the leadership role. And some of us have just deviated towards the clinical role as a nurse practitioner. That's how I ended up with a dual focus from UCLA. How does being a clinical nurse specialist help improve your practicing as a nurse practitioner? I would say that it actually encompasses my leadership role. When I trained as a nurse practitioner, I was really deep diving in regards to how to be a clinician. So I had to really embrace the nursing model, but the medical model as well as a nurse practitioner. So I really had to take these two big worlds and put it into one. And I think that was where my role as a nurse practitioner really focused on. As a clinical nurse specialist, not only did I have to learn the clinical, the clinician part, but I also had to learn the policies, the procedures, the guidelines, the education, how to implement. And that was a whole nother world in its own people can be very good clinicians and they may not be very good educators. Some people are very good educators and maybe not the best clinicians. So I think doing both of them has really given me a strong foundation to do a little bit of both. And I think that I I actually like doing policy and procedures. I like having structure and I've in all the institutions, anytime there was big change that was a little bit of a shell shock to the institution. I was able to finagle and deliver those changes in the policy without all the interdisciplinary members really getting upset or feel that maybe there's a overlapping of roles. And I think it's important when there's change that not only are you making change, but how you deliver the message is probably really important. And I think the CNS role really taught me that. I had really good mentors who taught me how to deliver the message without being a shell shock to the institution. You're a nurse practitioner, a clinical nurse specialist, a first assist, and also you're a doctor, a prepared clinician. It just mm-hmm. makes you unique and special because not so many nurse practitioners see themselves in a leadership role. And a lot of it has to do with the politics, right? Change involves politics and change involves communication. And you're right. A lot of nurse practitioners shy away because they don't want to deal with the politics. And I think that I've been taught, I've had a lot of great leaders that I have interacted with. And I've learned sitting at the table of what to say, not to say. And I've said things that maybe were just was not appropriate. And I've learned from those instances. But I think this clinical nurse specialist role really helped me stand out and really analyze our policies. Because if 
if you don't understand your policies or your standardized procedures, guess what? Somebody else are going to make changes for you and you may not be happy with those outcomes. So I just felt once I graduated, I really needed to know and understand and have a rationale to why is all this happening and who are these people making these decisions that may affect my practice and ultimately my livelihood. Let's walk back a little bit for those who's interested in in following your footstep as an RN. Gosh, let's, let's go way back. Let's see, I when I started as an RN, I started in a small community hospital at 21. Let's see, I guess it was a matter of really crossing paths with a lot of different people that kind of mentored me along the way. I lived, my mother was a single mother. She's from Central America. And my father was from Serbia, who eventually became a little estranged from the family. I think that over the time of like my childhood and growing up and whatnot, my exposure really has been involved with a lot of different people growing up. So I've learned to adapt to people's personality. And I was very young and I ended up having a teenage pregnancy. I had my daughter at the age of 15. And I think that was like the motivating factor because I looked at all my friends. I thought, oh my gosh, I don't want to be like them because they were struggling and there was a maturity level that I didn't have yet. I, I decided to pursue nursing when I was at the community college at 18. Who knows what you want to be at 18 at a community college. You're just trying to figure it out. And phenomenal teachers that kind of guided me. And so that was how I ended up becoming an RN. Actually, when I graduated, I didn't even know what department I wanted. At that time, when I graduated, there was a need of nurses and there was a demand, like they would take anybody. And I remember talking to my colleagues uh, when we graduated and we said, everybody's like, where are you going? What are you going to do? What department? I don't know. And I just applied and I applied to a new grad program. And I ended up getting into the critical care unit. Let me tell you, that was the toughest program ever. So ever since then, I just like fell in love with critical care. And and I think just over time, you just evolve and you look at your colleagues and everybody's moving in different directions. And as I saw like phenomenal colleagues just move in different directions, that's where I was like, I want to be like her or what do you do in that role? And so I think that's what led me to be where I'm at today was just being curious. When did you decide to become a nurse practitioner? Let's see. I decided to become a nurse practitioner after I finished my bachelor's. And when I finished my bachelor's, I actually had a really good colleague who said, you should really go into teaching. And I'm like, no, I tried away. And then I remember there was a nurse practitioner in our hospital and she was phenomenal. She was phenomenal. She worked for an infectious disease. And that was when the role of nurse practitioners were really new, but they existed, but we just didn't know their capacity yet. And this was like in 2004 or five. So it was still evolving. I think it's exploded now. I think nurse practitioners just exploded. And so I just remember picking her brain. She was really intelligent. The physicians went to her left and right. She was phenomenal. She, she was the total content expert when it came to infectious disease. And eventually she just became my role model. And that's when I decided to pursue being a nurse practitioner. I I really wanted to do it in uh, critical care because that was really where my home was critical care. That's phenomenal. You were young and forced you to grow up really quick. Have to commit into a profession. Oh yeah, that was a big component. It really was. When you're at a certain age, you really don't look at that. When you're in like your 
20s, you're just trying to get by, you're trying to have a family, you're getting married, you're, I would say in my 20s, professionally, I really didn't know what I was going to be. I just knew that I wanted to grow a family and I knew that I loved being an RN and I loved critical care and I was content at that time. I was very content. But then as you get older, then you start hitting your late 20s. Uh, you start maturing a little bit, you start having a different network of friends and colleagues, and you start getting more involved in committees at your hospital. And then you start seeing different avenues of what your coworkers are in. And then you're intrigued. And so that's like how I've evolved. I've just stayed curious. And if I was given a task and I didn't know. I found a way to figure it out. And I think that's just how I let on. And by the time you're in your thirties, I'm 42 now. What I think as 42 compared to what I thought at 32, completely different compared to 22, completely different. (laughs) So a lot of it has to do with maturity. And I think that I love my profession. I love my career. I think that there's still so much growth opportunity out there. And I think that I always considered nursing as this big tree trunk and you have just so many branches to swing on. And I've just swung on a couple branches. (laughs) I don't know how many more branches I'll still be swinging, but it's it's been exciting. It's been pretty cool, actually, I have to say. I have to say. And the job stability is pretty good. You know, it is pretty good right now. I think we will always be in demand. And I think that we're just going to have a strong, stable job market for us. That is wonderful. You were also very fortunate to find really good mentors. Why did you decide to pursue your doctorate? I think that that. as you start shifting into different circles, as you start, you finish NP school, we all know that's your master's degree. Um, But even it started at a bachelor's level. When I remember being with working side by side with my colleagues and they would tell me, Cynthia, why are you going for your bachelor's? It's not going to give you more money. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, she's right. It's not going to give me more money. But I think that I was curious enough. And I go back to curiosity because I think that if you're not curious, you become stagnant. And I think some of my colleagues may have been in the profession for a long time and maybe they were tired. Maybe they just had a different opinion. And I was young and I was still curious. I I think my curiosity wasn't burnt out yet. And that's why I decided for my bachelor's, despite some of the negatives, there are some negatives that people would say, and I just kept going, but there were positives too. I had really good uh, colleagues that advocated for me and said, you know what, just keep going. So then when I finished my master's, it became a big challenge. It was a big challenge to finish my master's. I will tell you that my program at UCLA was not a piece of cake. (laughs) It was very hard. And I could remember probably being in tears every week. Am I going to survive another week? And I probably said that for two years because, but I feel that it actually created and ingrained some grit in me because there were some bumps finishing my master's. It was not easy peasy. It wasn't. And I don't think those programs like that were meant to be easy because I think they were really setting you up to survive and they were setting you up to be a phenomenal clinician. And I think that just continued with me being resilient. You had to be resilient despite how hard it was. When I finished, when I decided to go for my DNP, 
I knew that was the future. I knew that I talk about this a lot as a nurse practitioner. When we become nurse practitioners, people forget that you are going into a world of competition. And I hate to say that, but you are competing whether you like it or not. It's a taboo word, but you are competing with other nurse practitioners for maybe a job or maybe a position for maybe for a salary raise. And I think that in order for me to stay one competitive in my field and two relevant, rel was so important to me that in order for me to stay those two things, I needed to get my DNP. I needed to learn more. I needed to understand the dynamics of leadership and research and application and implementation of guidelines and practice models and quality measures that maybe I didn't get in as a BSN, a bachelor's or a master's. And, and I needed to deep dive and I knew the DNP was going to allow me to deep dive into those arenas. And I knew that was the terminal degree that in order to stay relevant and competitive in my field, I needed a DNP. And, and that's a future right now. It is the future. And that was where I landed for my DNP. And I, I finished my DNP at Duke. And again, that was a very hard program. It wasn't meant to be easy. There was, again, many times over and over again, I would say, am I going to get through this next week? Am I going to get through this semester? Because those big programs, they really make you resilient. They really make you think out of the box. And I appreciate thinking out of the box because I don't think I would have gotten as far as I have if those mentors and those instructors didn't teach me how to be outside of the box. So that is why I finished my DMP. Could you tell us why you picked DNP program versus PhD? Yes, I will be honest with you. I am, I love being a clinician and the DNP route really made me a stronger clinician where I can apply my skill sets, apply the information that I needed to in the clinical setting. The PhD was not meant for me. One was statistics was very hard. <laughs> Make friends with a statistician is all I can say. But I think that I never really, I didn't see myself retiring from a, a huge academic institute. I've worked in academia. I love the academic institute, but do I see myself retiring from academia? I, I didn't. And I felt that I needed to anticipate where my future would be. And it just wasn't researched. Now, I love reading research. I love all the new insights and all the new data that comes out. But I just didn't see myself as I get close to retirement that I would be doing research with a PhD. And so I, I didn't pursue it. Now, does that mean I won't change my mind? I have no idea. I guess it just dep depends on how I evolve and what other branches I swing from because who knows what lies ahead for me. As of right now, I, I don't plan on getting my PhD. Could you tell us about your DNP project? So my DNP project was actually quite interesting. I think I had a lot of ideas and it evolved into so many different elements that eventually I ended up doing uh, health literacy in the primary care setting. And really what it came down to was evaluating patients' health literacy, what they knew about their health, essentially. Not essentially what their reading or comprehension abilities were, but just what did they understand? What was being told to them? And also evaluating the providers and staff's health literacy. Like, what do they know about health literacy? Do they understand that 
their patients may struggle. And I was trying to correlate the two together. And there is tons of information about health literacy. And unfortunately, my project, there was no statistical meaning to it, but it definitely enlightened my team and enlightened myself that we have to be very sensitive to people's ability of understanding what their health is. Just because you tell a patient they're a diabetic, they may not understand what it entails to be a diabetic. And so I think that it's really, it it really was an eye opener because a lot of patients were coming in and they were on medications and they just did not know they had high blood pressure or they didn't even know what their numbers were that were considered high blood pressure. For a diabetic, they weren't even educated on how do you measure your your acuity of your diabetes. So they didn't even understand that they had to get their hemoglobin A1Cs or they didn't even know what their last numbers were. And so I think that really shined a light on the whole team and the clinic that I performed my project on. And so we are very conscientious about one's health literacy and their ability to understand because we had patients that had college degrees and still didn't understand what was going on with their health. That is enlightening. That is amazing. Did you realize that before your DNP project? Did you have a suspicion? No, I went to DNP school. Oh gosh, I wanted to focus on NP satisfaction and, but that was way hard. And you have to get buy-in from your institution. And when you don't get buy-in from your institution, it makes it hard. So then some people had to shop around to other areas. I did. I had to look around outside of my institution because it wasn't supported. So then I found a small underserved community clinic and actually started my project there. And I actually work there now. And I work there about uh, two to four days out of the month in an underserved clinic where we served a predominant low socioeconomic patients. So I work there now and I love it. The team is great. And again, you just never know evolves, but that was not my project to begin with. When they asked when I got accepted, they want you to have a project, an idea. Well, my idea was way on the left. (laughs) So like I said, I had to start over probably about three times. So again, it was one of those, am I going to get through this semester? Those challenges are changes. And so that's part of the resilience. If you can change three times in two years, your project, that is definitely some resilience. That is amazing. I find your final topic to be insightful. I believe it raises a lot of real questions. When clinicians seeing patients, are you really impacting their health? Are they understanding and know the treatment plans? And they don't. And it's funny because on some of the questions we use, the AHRQ health literacy, there's actually a health literacy score that you can get. It's free to the public. And one of the measurements actually describes like your relationship with your provider. And a lot of these patients may not understand because maybe they don't have a relationship with the provider. How many times have you had a patient and they just don't jive with you for whatever reason, they're having a bad day, who knows? So I think that it was very insightful to see that there was, it was all encompassing in regards to how your relationship and how they actually receive the information. Because if they are not receptive to you, they are not going to be receptive to the information. There was a lot of components. So it was actually pretty cool to to perform the study. That's great. I I would love to read it. I would love to be able to have a a link later on. Yes. Below this podcast. I could send you that link to the AHRQ. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then our audience could 
read it. The clinician might find it helpful so they can apply it in their practice. I think it's just an yeah. amazing project. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. One thing the audience may not know is what is a nurse practitioner? The, essentially, the nurse practitioner, as defined by the BRN, is we're essentially advanced. We have advanced education beyond our master's or at the master's or beyond that gives us a certain skill set to essentially assess, diagnose, treat, educate, manage acute and chronic conditions. And essentially, that's what we're building upon. We're building on our RN license. And I think some people don't understand that because they do a comparative to physician assistants. We already have the background of nursing, which is a very strong background in, in a certain clinical subset. And now we're just building upon that. And being a nurse practitioner is not just applying the nursing model because we are very holistic, but we're also adopting, we're adopting the medical model. We have to understand our model too, because it takes both models to really deliver patient care. And again, we're just, the nursing background, the RN background is really a foundation that we just continue to build and build. And that's really our role as a, as a nurse practitioner. That's amazing. In your practice, Dr. Giovanni, do you find that patients still do not know what nurse practitioner is? And they say, can you really prescribe medication? Yeah, I get that. It's not as much now, I think, because there's a lot of consumer education now, I think. But there's still room for more. In the beginning, yes. In the beginning, I would get, can you write that narcotic for me? Or can you write that antibiotic for me? Or they would say, are you sure the physician said it was okay? A lot of it is just re-educating and just taking the time to inform them of what your role is. But I will have to say, I don't come across that as much as I used to in the beginning. Mind you, I've been practicing for 10 years. And that is because I think consumers are a little bit more aware of who we are and what our role is. Could you tell us about your typical day? What is your typical day like as a nurse practitioner? So I have, so I will, right now I work in the acute care setting because I'm acute care certified and I work right now in general surgery. So my day there is a little different than what my day would be in the primary care setting, which I do have my FNP as well. So in the acute care setting, because right now I work in general surgery, right now we actually work the bridge to the surgeons. And so what essentially happens is we support the service line where when patients are getting admitted, we get them into the system as fast as we can and then get them out of the system safely. Because our surgeons, as many of you guys know, are busy in the operating room. They come early in the morning or they come late at night and increases length of stay. It delays sometimes delivery of care. So we are that bridge. We help with those gaps. And so we really are strong in moving those patients through the system. And that's my role now in general surgery is I'll get a patient in the ER. I'll see the patient based on the acuity. Sometimes the patients are really sick and they go straight from the ER to the OR. And my surgeon will be in the OR and I'll say, hey, this patient needs to go to surgery, get ready. And we have a very trusting relationship because in order for it to work, the surgeon and myself, we have to trust each other's assessment. He's in surgery. And he's got to know that he can trust me based on my clinical exam that the patient has a perforated bowel and needs to go straight to surgery. There's no time to mess around. It's been really, 
exciting. And that's how it's been even when I worked in the arenas of cardiac surgery, we were really the bridge and we really move patients along. In the primary care setting, it's, I don't want to say it's pretty typical. It's changed quite a bit because of COVID. And really what has happened is because of COVID, we do a lot of telemedicine, which has its challenges. But right now the day consists of having clinic visits and telehealth visits. Any new patients or anybody recently discharged or somebody who is we're trying to divert from the urgent care will come see me. And we make a lot of time for those patients. And then we have telehealth patients. And so we also make a lot of times for those patients that mostly are established, non-urgent patients. Many times I've seen patients on telehealth and I say, okay, I need you to come in. We have an appointment. We have a space open in an hour. Please come in. Sometimes those telehealth clinics do convert into, I need to see you lay my eyes and and feel what's going on before I send you to the ER. And sometimes that happens. So it changes and you just never know what's thrown at you. That's really interesting. My follow-up question is, what are the challenges you encounter as a nurse practitioner? When I'm involved with patients, I would say the challenges are Google. (laughs) And I, I would say that would probably be the biggest challenge is when your patients really try to question maybe your intelligence or your knowledge or your authority. And that's challenging because the first thing they'll say is, I looked up. Yeah. (laughs) And power to them. Because you know why I say that is because we're a team. We are a team. The patient and I are a team. And you know what? It comes to a point where the patients know their bodies better than any clinician would. We're facilitators. We're facilitating their signs and their symptoms into a diagnosis so that we can help them. And I think that as all my years in practice, rather than having an argument of who's right and wrong or fighting the Google system, you just work with the system and there's ways to deliver the message. If a patient says, I looked up and I think, and then you can say, you know what? You're probably right. That sounds about right. Let's try X, Y, and Z. And so I think that I've had more patients that come to me and stay with me because I'm not discrediting their their issues. I meet them where they're at, good or bad. And they could come in with really sickly situations, or they could come with just minor issues. But either way, I meet them where they're at and whatever their knowledge set is, because I don't feel that I should dismiss what they're feeling, because they're probably right, probably 90% of the time. So it is um, important that I listen to them. So I think that would probably be the only challenge. It was the Google That's a really great point because I believe the Institution of Medicine recommended patient-centered care or person-centered care. The patients are actually the star. They're the team member. Yeah, you listen. You don't just hear them. You listen. And they they are usually spot on. (laughs) They are pretty spot on. And they're just there to be validated most of the time. They really are. They just want to say, look, I think this is what it is. And they're there to see you to say, you're right. That is what it is. And just validated that they were right. And so, again, I have no problem working as a team with them because that's what we do. As the old saying goes, listen to your patients. They will tell you what they have. <laughs> yes. Right. Could you tell us about the pros and cons of being a nurse practitioner in California? Pros and cons. I think the pros is there's a lot of job security and there's a lot of variability of being a nurse practitioner, depending on your board certification. So if you are family, you could really jump around between the ER, the urgent care, different specialties even pediatrics, if you are 
acute care, well, you can go around to different specialties as well. I've done cardiothoracic, I've done hospitals work, surgeries. That's the beauty, I would say, the versatility. I love versatility. And I say that because sometimes I get bored. And so when I get bored, I tend to do projects that will kill my boredom. So that I would say is the pros of being a nurse practitioner. The cons about being the nurse practitioner in California, of course, is being a bit restrictive. I think that there are challenges. I think that we want to provide services to patients. I think that we have been trained back as a nurse. The foundation is to be holistic and to be inclusive of all patients. And I think that we want to provide those services to those that don't have. And we see that in California. And the fact that we can't go out there and be independent to provide those services makes it a con to practice in California. And sometimes that's why nurse practitioners move their families because they want to be able to train or to provide services based on their training. And so that kind of makes it a con right now in California. Let's review your advocacy role. As an advocate for nurse practitioner, you have been in a leadership position and continuously advocating for nurse practitioner and nurse practitioner profession. Could you tell us about your leadership position in terms of being in the CANP? Yeah, I think it started, my involvement in leadership really started when I became a nurse practitioner. I wasn't really too involved before that. I did teaching but I didn't really see myself in any institution as a leader because I worked in critical care and I had life going on and who wants to juggle all those responsibilities. And when I finished my NP, I actually had a mentor who was a cardiac surgeon and I really was introduced what leadership was and leadership really started being a team. And it was funny because he really dragged me by the hands, essentially saying, you're going to these meetings, you're going to this conference, you're going to the OR, you're going. And I, as intimidated as I was, because it is intimidating, I would sit at a table with a bunch of cardiologists and cardiac surgeons at a section meeting. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? And he would say, you are part of my team. You are the team here. If they can have their team, I'm going to have my team. And so I, it really made me see things differently. And I think that because I was really introduced to what that leadership was, it just, I stopped being intimidated because I was familiar because I, I, I had a seat at the table. I may have not said much, but I was there to observe. And I think that's where it stemmed from. And then as I got more comfortable in my own skin as a nurse practitioner, I think we all come to that crossroad where we feel like we need to pay it forward. And so in paying it forward, I, I got very involved in my community. And when it started was when I became a first assist, and there was a lot of barriers in the institution that I was at in regards to a nurse practitioner being a first assist. And some of it stemmed from the physician I worked with. And so if you didn't maybe belong to the popular group, then maybe you had a little more barriers than others. And so I saw that, I witnessed that, and I saw what was occurring. And because I, I tend to stay a little quiet and observe to gauge and assess, I'm assessing people's personalities and what people do and where they're at in the system. I, I think that being able to just take a you know deep breath 
and watch. I realized that the barriers that had, that was, it was not easy to become an NP for CIS. I will tell you that. I had to go to a lot of different places. I had to reach out to a lot of different people on emails and to help me break down the barriers, to help me build a policy. I wasn't reinventing the wheel. I know that. I just had to bring the wheel to a different program. So I think that really trying as hard as I can to make these changes, it, how do I say it? It it just, I feel that it really just changed the landscape and bringing down these barriers. I thought to myself, wow, if I'm struggling, who else is struggling? And so that was when I got more involved in my community because I'm like, I know there's other nurse practitioners because how am I going to get this information if I don't network? And so when I got involved in the Inland Empire chapter, that's really where I thrived. And I made great people, got great resources. And they were like, oh, hey, I know this person. Hey, I know that person. Hey, I know this. And it's, it just was a trifecta for me. And that's where I felt it's really time that we support our nurse practitioners, that we help break down barriers as much as we can and show that we're leaders in the institution, in the clinic, within the state, within the community. And that's where I've been ever since, because I feel that they say, when you begin your nursing practice, they always say, never burn bridges because you never know when you're going to cross them again. And I think that's come full circle because there's a lot of people I've crossed paths with that I'm like, Oh yes, I remember I worked with you. Oh yes, I remember when you were the CNA and now you're like the CNO. So I think it's just, you know, phenomenal. And so I feel like just really struggling to break down those barriers. I felt, wow, we've got to do this together as one rather than individuals. I think we would be more successful. And so that's where that stemmed from and why I got so involved in my community and in CANP because they really created a strong platform for me to network. That's amazing. You continue to shine as an advocate for nurse practitioner within the, the Inland Empire CANP chapter. You were the president one time and now you're president-elect again. Could you share with us ab- about your first presidency role and then your second? What are your plans for a subsequent term? Oh, yeah, so I was the president for Inland Empire and it was great. I had a great team. I will say that it was, it's a big commitment. It is a huge commitment and involvement because you need to stay engaged. And I will say that I had a very strong team to help me in my presidency. I couldn't have done it without them. And I think that really what helped with the presidency at the Inland Empire at the chapter level was the transparency. We were transparent 110%. And we really wanted to grow our chapter, and we did. In the two years that I served for the president of Inland Empire, we grew 100 new members. That's a lot in just less than two years. And we continue to grow. I think in all of California, we were the, I think we were number five, I want to say, five, six, in regards to growth, membership growth. I think we're now number two. It's just grown. And I think because we had such a great team and now the new president has still the same team and it just continues to evolve. I I got more involved at the presidency level. What ended up happening was I ended up serving as the VP of finance at the state level. So I was nominated to serve and that really introduced me to what was happening at the state level. And it was the behind the scenes was just a well-oiled machine, I will have to say. And that exposure really 
taught me what it was to be on the forefront of massive change because of this bill that's coming out. And I just think that the mentors that I had for at the state, then I was nominated to become now the president elect. So for the state, and I'm still learning, believe it or not, at the, as a president elect, what it takes to be on the forefront of this chapter, because we are evolving and it's, it's growing and it's exciting. And so I think that I'm actually excited. I'm learning something new and I'm evolving and it's the perfect time when we have a bill and hopefully by, I don't know, maybe the end of my presidency in four years will be full practice and without any collaboration, without any oversight. And we can definitely provide the services that we were intended to do to the, to our full practice authority. And so I'm excited uh, to be honest with you. I'm pretty excited. That is wonderful. Let's jump into the AB 890 bill. bill. Yes. Is it the CANP that's endorsing this bill, initiating, and how are you involved? CANP did not create the bill. We supported the bill. It was actually the author is Assemblymember Wood. And so he has written the bill and there are co-authors of the bill. And in regards to that, he came to CANP and said, hey, I want to do X, Y, and Z. How do you feel? And he got our input and we decided, okay, let's support the bill. Now, was the bill perfect in the beginning? No, because you have somebody who is trying to fill a void, but really didn't know how to deliver the void. So that's where he came to us and said, I need your insight. I need help. And I initially was not part of the committee when the ball started rolling. So it started rolling and it started rolling fast. So because my president-elect started this June, I'm jumping on board now and catching up to what has really happened in all the previous time. So I'm getting the last bits and pieces of it all. It was all the previous chapter president, Karen Bradley and uh, Teresa, who really has been part of it. And of course we have people that are policy makers, policy specialists, lobbyists that are heavily involved in regards to the ongoing communication. So it takes a team to really drive this. It's not just the board of directors for CANP, it's the executive committee, it's the lobbyists, it's special specialists that come in, policy makers, policy writers. It's, it's, it takes a whole team. So I just came onto the tail end and it's been pretty exciting to see the evolution of the bill because there was a few amendments and you can follow them online. And it's like, I I was telling our team every time there was a new change or a new suggestion and no, they're not willing to bend or yes, they're willing to bend. And it was like the analogy, I I would say, I feel like I'm in a roller coaster without a seatbelt. And I just don't know when I'm going to fall out because it was that intense. It was very intense because I just, we're just sitting on this roller coaster, like without really saying, this is what we need. This is what the expectations are. This is what the changes should be. And, you know, it's, it's all about negotiating and politicking. And I just, I'm really leaving it up to the expert because there are our lobbyists and there are policy writers and they are really the content expert in putting something together so big. And, but we are the content expert when it comes to advocating for our scope. So it was trying to put all those pieces together to make it work. So right, um, right. it's been pretty fun. That's exciting to be a part of that process. 
Now we understand that the bill has passed the Senate. Could you tell us what is in this final version of the bill that's on Governor Newsom's desk? And also, how likely is he to sign it into law? The final version, obviously, is open to the public, and it really consists of four pillars to the bill. And the four pillars really consist of, one is removing standardized procedures. The second one is a transition to practice. The third one is grandparenting, you know, what the grandparenting clause will be. And the fourth one is really trying to just provide a gap to those in need, what we call the provider gap. The bill is pretty transparent. Now, in regards to the, the governor signing, we feel that he will sign. We don't have any reason why we shouldn't sign. I think that we are in this perfect storm of, with COVID, with being on the forefront, providing these services to underserved, that I think that this bill will definitely fill that void that we've been looking for. And of course, do we want to remove transition to practice? Of course. Is this going to be the end of cleanup bills? No, we will have lots more cleanup to do once he signs this bill and we'll be right back at the table trying to discuss transition to practice and getting more data and discussing grandfathering and then the advisory council that is supposed to be in place. And so I think that it's definitely going to move forward is a strong feeling that I have and that our team has discussed. And again, because of the climate we're in, there's no reason not to. I understand that the bill needs a lot of clarifications. We know that there's going to be an oversight committee. Could you discuss a little bit more about the oversight committee? So we don't know who's in it. Actually, I must, I, what, we, what will happen is there'll probably be an application process and they will be an advisory committee that recommends to the BRN. So the advisory committee just makes recommendations, and this is actually stipulated in the midwife bill as well. And so they were trying to really align the two guidelines or the two bills with this advisory committee. That's one thing. This advisory committee will compose of nurse practitioners that were the content expert. There is a recommendation to have a physician as well who works with nurse practitioners, who understands our scope. And essentially, we would be most likely making recommendations to the BRN to change, to modify, to add, to remove any practice issues. And then the second part is the transition to practice. So the transition to practice, really, other states have transitioned to practice, but because it was so um, difficult in California to completely remove, it was a compromise. And so I think that compromising was a huge step because then I think that what will end up happening is when we move more bills forward and we have more data, more information, then we eventually can remove that transition to practice. It's written to the bill that two physicians will be part of the oversight committee. What is your comment on that? personal comments is, I think that it's important that we still practice in a multidisciplinary view. And I think that it shouldn't hurt to have different vantage points to look at what scope of practices and 
if we have any issues with disciplinary actions. And I think that when you stay in one silo, I think that it's hard to see outside of those silos when too many people think alike. So I think having a physician, and this is my personal opinion, is another vantage point. And I think it shouldn't hurt the advisory committee. I think it will help support the advisory committee. And one of the stipulations is that these physicians must have worked with nurse practitioners in in the past. It can't just be anybody who hasn't. And I am sure when the application process is in effect, they will look at who is the most qualified. Is there a length of term that these applicants can serve? No, I don't think it's in the bill. I think that once, I believe what ends up happening is there will be a subcommittee to determine that, but I don't have any information on that, to be honest with you. I don't know how long they serve. I don't know how they will be chosen. I I don't have any of that information. I'm sure that the BRN will dictate that process. Is there a consideration for a separate board for nurse practitioner? Initially in the bill, when it be beginning in the bill, yes, there was a consideration to have a completely separate board from the BRN. I see, but not at the final version of the bill. The final is now an advisory committee. Could you tell us about the transition to practice? The transition to practice is still vague. And essentially the way it was worded in the bill is that it's going to be left up to It'll be left, sorry, my earphone. It'll be left up to the advisory board to decide that. What does that look like? What are we going to put in place and then bring it up to the BRN? So again, it's pretty vague in the bill. And that's where once all of these roll out, we'll have a little bit more definition. That includes the grandfathering. How does the grandfathering work out? And so that is where the role of the board really, uh, the advisory board will come together and stipulate all those definition. So uh, I don't have that information right now. If this bill end up passing and become law, can the nurse practitioner open their own practice and be able to practice independently? So I I think if this bill is signed and uh, the way it's worded still a, a bit vague until we get an advisory board, but if all the pieces fall in the right place, say with the transition to practice and whatnot. I do believe that you can practice independently. I think that the caveat is when you practice independently, you also are bringing along the liabilities that go with it. And I think nurse practitioners forget that. I think that nurse practitioners forget that once you become a nurse practitioner, you are a business and you will be seen as competition. And if you are going to practice independently, you will be seen in that manner. And therefore the liability becomes even higher, I believe. And I believe this bill though, once you finish the transition to practice, that yes, you can be autonomous and you can practice independently, but there does come liability with that. And I think that some nurse practitioners who may not be business savvy or may not know what their productivity is or maybe how insurances work, or understand RVUs and reimbursement and malpractice. I anticipate malpractice will go up definitely if you are independent, independently practicing. And I just think that there's more involved and more responsibilities when you become independent. And maybe there's a cohort of people that don't understand that, but there are a big cohort that do. And so 
it'll be interesting to see how many nurse practitioners will be practicing independently once they complete their transition to practice and whatnot, as indicated by the bill. I will say that I think that the roles and responsibilities of a nurse practitioner is very big. And I do a lot of teaching with nurse practitioners. And I sometimes think that new nurse practitioners underestimate what really practicing independently is about and underestimate the liabilities that come with that. And you know that as a lawyer, you see that firsthand because I'm sure as a lawyer, you're probably seeing, you're anticipating what's going to happen to our malpractice, what's going to happen to our insurance? What are we going to be able to be considered primary on the insurance? Because now that's another hurdle. People are forgetting. Now you can be independent, a practice all you want, but what happens if your insurance company doesn't recognize you as an independent provider? What happens if you are practicing in a hospital and your hospital doesn't see you as the ability to be a primary care provider and have admitting privileges? So I don't think people realize that there are way more bigger hurdles than just this bill. There's a state level, and then there's national level issues that we're still dealing with. I think that I'm actually interested myself to see how many will be an independent practice because uh, there will be bigger roles and responsibilities in, in regards to that. Who can practice independently and when and in what setting? And, and remember, if you are practicing, and of course there's grandfather issues that we or grandparenting issues we need to uh, discuss. And I think that th you're right. There are some more clarifications and we're not going to get those clarifications until the advisory board is put together and discusses what that looks like because it's still a little vague and you're absolutely right. So this bill doesn't define the steps, but it wasn't meant to define every single step. It was defined. But the way bills work is it's so broad, but you don't want it too narrow. So we wanted to stay broad. So we still have leeway because we don't want to be in a trap door. And so I, I think that there were, there are going to be nurse practitioners that they're okay with standardized procedures. And you know what? There's going to be institutions. So it doesn't matter what the state says because the institution has certain medical staff bylaws and rules and regulations, and they're probably going to require standardized procedures because that is their bylaws. It'll be interesting to see how this evolves and we still have to wait and see. The bill does consider now, if, I don't know if people are aware of this, the bill does have kickback laws, okay? Kickback laws are a big deal. If you are an independent provider, you are held to the Sunshine Act via the CMS guidelines and there are kickback laws, there are stark laws that you cannot cross. So right, right. when you become independent, you are becoming a business and you are held to those, that business standard. And that includes kickback laws. So kickback laws include if you have family, if you have close relationships to another business, a pharmaceutical, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then you can get into big trouble for that. So I think that again, when the bill was made, they were looking at it too, from a business point too. They were looking at it from legally and a liability. And I think that independent practice absorbs all of that if you want to hang a shingle. So that bill does have that where the Stark laws are in there and it's a reportable event. So that's really important to make note of that. As an independent practitioner, 
working independently, of course, mm-hmm. you have a potential higher liability. But you have to be in compliance with anti-kickback laws, Stark's laws, mm-hmm. and be compliance with reimbursement. And then my question, and I really haven't gotten, I haven't really gotten it defined, to be honest with you. But if you are independent practice, what happens to the nurse practitioners who are hired by the hospitals? What happens to them? What happens? If there's kickback laws, physicians can't be hired by hospitals. That's why they have a foundation to go around kickback laws. So what happens to the nurse practitioner then who wants to be independent? They can't be hired by the hospital if there's kickback laws. So does that mean the nurse practitioners get dumped into a foundation like physicians? So I think that those are big questions and this bill doesn't define it. But for those like you and myself that are a little familiar with some of those policies and procedures or practicing and you're familiar with a little bit of politics, I anticipate what's going to happen with that because nurse practitioners are hired by the hospital because they're allowed to right now. But what happens later on? Will we be allowed to be hired by the hospital if we are not, if we don't have standardized procedures or we're considered in, independent after you go through a transition period? So I, I don't know. That I, That's actually unknown to me. And those are the questions right. that needs more clarification. For yes, example, yes. what are reimbursement for independent yes. nurse practitioner in California? And we have to compare and contrast to other states that have literally no restriction. Exactly. And again, like I said, what happens to those cohorts that want to be independent or going to go through this transition? I don't know because I don't know what the advisory is going to say. I have no idea. But if you're thinking in the future and you think, oh, wow, if I'm an independent provider, then technically I probably can't be hired by the hospital and I can't be a union in a hospital if I'm a nurse practitioner because you're independent. That means you hold independent contracts. So I think that's going to be spoken about in the future. And I think that's something that we'll, we'll have to figure out. But I don't know. I just know that there's these pathways there's these transitions, but what does that look like? I don't have that foresight. And that, to be honest, that hasn't even been discussed, but I've been around in a lot of hospitals. I've worked in private practice, hospitals, big institutions, little institutions. And as we see it, physicians are independent contractors, independent practice, and they cannot be hired by the hospital because of Stark laws. And so therefore they are in a foundation if they want to be aligned with an institution. So is that what's going to happen to us, right? Is that what's going to be the future of nurse practitioners? Because then Stark laws and those laws are in the bill, section 805, there's kickback laws. Those are great questions. And those are, that's some thinking that's going to happen. And people are going to be like, yes, I want independent practice. And then, oh, wait a minute, I can't be hired yet. You know, I have to, I don't know the answer. But I do think about it. I don't know the answer. It'll be interesting to see uh, what happens. But I think in moving forward, I think that we do need to be independent in this state. And I think that patients do need access. That I wholeheartedly feel. But we just don't know what's going to evolve with the advisory committee, what they, what their suggestions are, what the BRN will say. That's still, I think, in the dark. We have to wait for the advisory board to be put together. And then they will define what that looks like nurse practitioner when practice and function independently are, are there increased liabilities you're right we don't know and i think that we'll find more data and i think we're going to get more data for example in the primary care setting you have physicians that are billing incident to incident to the np note guess what data is not accurate 
because of the fact that it's all falling under the physician's NPI number and not the nurse practitioner. So that isn't really accurate data. So that's why it's so hard to get it because we're not even being identified properly when it comes to billing and revenue and length of stay because it's not being tied to us right now. It's partially being tied, but it's not all of it being tied. There's a lot of missed data. So I think that it starts there too, is just being identified with the right data. The, the oversight committees will define what transition practice is, and if there's right. need to be an exam, should a nurse practitioner have been practicing for a while under this right. process? That's going to be taken into consideration, and it's going to be a big task. It's going to be a big task. And again, those are just areas that are the unknown right now. Anything in the bill that we should be discussing that we're overlooking? No, I think that you you really hit on all the big topics. And I think that we're just waiting for the governor to sign. I will say that baby steps are better than no steps at all is how I see things. I think that we're moving in the right direction. I think that there is a lot of politicking that happens. And I think that it's time for us to move forward and be innovative as a state and as a profession. And we just have to keep moving. We have to just keep moving. And sometimes it feels it's not going anywhere, but it really is. And I think one thing I've learned, I will say, is the beauty of patience. You, This is really just, it's like playing chess. It's being the rook in the chess piece and trying to say, okay, I'm going to go in this direction. No, I'm going to go in that direction. No, I can't go in this direction. You know what I mean? And it, it's just really just, but it takes time and there's oh it's it takes really planning and anticipating what the next move is going to be and I will say that's one thing I've taken from all this is just be very patient (laughs) that's what we need to have being a nurse practitioner in California we have to be patient and I think patients we do have then that's why we continue to live in California (laughs) yeah so I've learned that I've learned to just let the experts do their job and you you just be patient and wait and see. The cards are going to fall the way the cards are going to fall. But we've done a lot of work behind the scenes, a lot of networking. And so that's really what it comes down to. And really educating your assembly members and your senators and the consumers of what we do. Because if you don't know, then they can't speak to it. So we've done a lot of that. But it is exciting times. I have to say it's exciting times. It is. It is. What I notice is that the California Medical Association are against this bill, and that was anticipated. But what I was surprised to see was that the California BRN are also against mm-hmm. this bill. Could you shed light a little bit as to why they're against this bill? I can't really speak to why they were against the bill, and I don't think they're against the bill as a whole, as I recall. I believe it was the stipulation of having the advisory committee and having a physician on the advisory. So I think that saying they were opposing it is very different than saying not supporting it as written. I think that it's just a matter to see what happens with the governor and signing and then crossing that bridge in regards to the advisory committee when it comes down to it. So specifically, they were opposing this bill because physicians on oversight committee and they're not supporting that on the advisory committee yes i see okay that makes sense to me yeah there's the whole bill and then there's parts of the bill so i think they it wasn't that they opposed as written meaning but it was written because of the physicians on the advisory committee which i really can't speak to what 
how they felt about that. But the feedback I got was it was because the physicians were on the advisory committee. And now is that going to change? I don't know. Is it going to stay in place? I don't know. And until we figure out what the governor is, whether the governor is going to sign the bill or not. That's very interesting. I think we discussed this in many different directions. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I have any further question on that. It's a convoluted bill. It's a convoluted bill. Yeah. And I think we'll get there. I think we're just right now waiting for the, the bill to pass, be signed by the governor, and then we clean up. Right, Sometimes right, right. it's easier to clean up than just to start over from scratch. So I think that we're just baby steps. We're just waiting to see where, what happens with the governor. And, and then we go back at it again. We go back to the negotiation table and say, we need this to be cleaned up. We need this to be specified. And it was just exciting to get as far as we have. It's, yes. it's been a big deal. So we've had previous bills that have, you know, not gone as far. And so this is, I think that if this bill didn't go as far as it have, I think we'd have more challenges, but because it's gone so far and there's been so much support, large organizational support for this bill, that I think that it's going to move in the right direction. I would like to discuss about your publication. You publish an, an article. Could you tell us more about that? Oh, yeah. So the article was about, so the article was a point counterpoint in the Journal of Nurse Practitioners. And I actually work with somebody by the name of Donald, who is one of the editors of this point counterpoint and asked me about a topic and wanted my input. And so really uh, what it came down to was the article was, pros and cons. And we talked about clinical ladder. And really what I advocated was that we should have clinical ladders in an institution because the evaluation method is the evaluation method of nurse practitioners is really, there's not a defined practice. There's not a defined category. And because we have moved from a bedside role to a provider role, we have to look at how to be evaluated in that provider role. And so really the clinical ladder stemmed from magnet in regards to how nurses were evaluated and compensated. And so when we looked at that, we said, okay, we work for magnet hospitals. This is really important. This is how it's consistent on how to be evaluated. And so I advocated for a clinical ladder, but part of having a clinical ladder is really taking all the components that we're responsible for. Like we're responsible for billing, we're responsible for productivity, we're responsible for how we contribute to RVUs. And just like physicians are, if we are going to be in a provider role, then we need to be evaluated in a provider role. But it was, how do we do that? Aligning ourselves with clinical with a clinical ladder. And so that really is where it's, it stemmed from. What's yeah. your recommendations for California nurse practitioner? Should all of us be a part of the yes. CNP? Yes, yes. I say that because I think that you need to know what's happening with your practice, right? And if you don't know what's happening in your practice, other people are going to make decisions for you. And physicians stay very well connected. They stay well connected to their schools. They stay well connected to their organizations that they work with. They stay well connected to their specialties, their conferences. And I think that we need to as well. We need to stay informed. We need to be engaged. I think that California all nurse practitioners should be part of CANP. I, I think that it would help with 
future bills. I think it would help with pack raising. I think it would help being stronger and educating the consumers of what we do and who we are. And I think that we would just have a bigger voice. I also feel that way at the organizational level. I'm chair of the APP council and this is my personal belief. It is mandated that physicians attend a certain amount of committee meetings, part of their medical staff bylaws and rules and regulations. They've got to attend. And if they don't attend, they get penalized to maintain that as part of the expectation to maintain their privileges. In an organization, we bifurcate to HR and medical staff. We need to, as nurse practitioners, be engaged, be informed, and be mandatory participating in in committees. Otherwise, you leave it up to people who are not content experts of our field to make these decisions. And then you're upset because... Where did that come from? Where did that rule come from? And then you're questioning who did this, who did that? So I feel that it is your duty as a nurse practitioner to stay very involved um, in your organizational meetings and committees, as well as your state and national committees. It's important because things are happening. Things are changing real fast. And so you don't want to be behind the eight ball for that. So you want to have a seat at the table. And I, I firmly believe that. that's a great point for nurse practitioner who's motivated. How could they sign up? How could they get involved? It's fairly easy for CANP. You just go on their website and register. If you're a student, it all starts being at a student level. We encourage all students to be part of CANP because I think that you have to have that seed implanted inception of your new professional practice. I feel that way even if you're not a nurse practitioner and you're a critical care nurse, you need to stay engaged in your specialty, go to your meetings, network. And I think that it's just important to your profession. And I, I say that being part of this organization or national organization, it keeps you abreast of the changes, okay? And, and you want to be able to know what those changes are. For example, I get newsletters and emails all the time of what's happening at a national level, what the CMS guidelines are, what they're changing, their physician uh, fee schedule is changing. And you talk to nurse practitioners and I say, do you know what the physician fee schedule is? And they're like, what is that? And I'm thinking, you should know this. You should know what a physician fee schedule is. You should know how you contribute to a clinic. You should know what your productivity is. Evaluation comes in, you need to know what you've done to support this clinic, to support the community, to support productivity, what you're bringing to the table. And I feel that physicians do this. This is how they negotiate as providers. And we need to know this too, as nurse practitioners, we need to be engaged and we have to be the content experts of our practice. That's an excellent point. I'm sure a lot of nurse practitioners are inspired by what you just said. Thank you. Reflecting back on your achievements, have you ever thought you would become a registered nurse, a nurse practitioner, and obtain a doctorate degree and be in a position that impact policy influence the AB 890 and serve as president of the CNP Inland Chapter? No, I think that, uh, again, I, I say nursing is this big, trunk this tree thick tree and there are just so many branches to swing from and I think that I would have never thought of thinking back when I was a new graduate in critical care with my eyes wide open thinking like deer in headlights what have I just done I would have never thought I'd be here really I haven't and I think it really comes down to just 
being open and receptive. And again, going back to curiosity, I, I, I've networked with so many people and they'll say, hey, Cynthia, you should come to this meeting. And I'm thinking, sure, why not? Or, hey, Cynthia, I have this committee. I think you'd be great. Why don't you join? Sure, why not? I, I may not feel like I have a lot to contribute, and we go into that imposter syndrome. I may not feel that I have enough, you know, knowledge or skill set to really provide any substantial information. But I think just saying yes to the opportunities, you just never know. For example, I, I was asked recently to at CBU. I was approached by the dean and say, and they asked me, "Hey, Cynthia, what do you think about teaching a course?" And I thought to myself. I was shaking in my boots, I will tell you that, <laughs> because that's a big responsibility. And then I thought to myself, you know what? Why not? They obviously saw something that I'm not seeing. So let's just go ahead and try it once. What's it going to hurt to try it once? I'm either going to love it or I'm going to be like, okay, I don't know if I can do this again. So I think that having that opportunity when the door is wide open, it doesn't hurt to walk through because what's the worst thing that can happen? You just walk out and just say, this avenue wasn't good for me. And I don't think there's any shame or embarrassment to say, I've tried it, but it just didn't work. I'm learning something new. It's definitely different to teach a big course. I have 50 students. It's definitely a new skill set. I am learning a lot about myself again and learning about the students and making sure that I give them as much information and insight to be good clinicians, because that's my goal. And so that when they go out into the real world, they're like ready and prepared to provide services to their patients and everything that they've trained to be. So it's definitely, it's different. Being a, a, a lecturer for a, a big university is different than being the clinician. The information, I know what it is to be a clinician. I'm pretty good at it, but carrying that torch is a big responsibility. Because I, I remember looking at my professor and be like, oh my God, you're so amazing. How do you just have all that knowledge and still publish and still do research? Where does that come from? So I think just trying to carry that torch as my past professors to make sure that I'm able to support these students. It's, it's been pretty exciting. It's definitely something new. It's a new skill set. I will tell you that, a new skill set. I'm sure that your students find you amazing. I'm oh, sure that you. you definitely carry that torch. You're just such an amazing person and just such an inspirational leader. My next thought is that what are her future plans? What are my future plans? Do you <laughs> see yourself running for, for office, for the local and state oh, level? I'll be honest with you. I am pretty content with where I'm at. Now, do I have other goals professionally where I work at? Of course, I, I do. I, I see I'm APP chair right now, and, and I see future for nurse practitioners at my hospital. We're discussing an NP residency. Who knows where that's going to lead? I don't know. I just am going with the flow and seeing what door opens. In regards to my personal life, I have two daughters. They're 25 and 18. My 18-year-old goes to the community college, and my 25-year-old is a student getting a master's degree in public health at Cal Baptist, and she is going to get her JD because she wants to do policy, and we were just having a discussion about policy. So having these conversations at the dinner table is actually quite exciting. Controversial, but exciting. So I think that I'm in a good place, personally, can't travel, 
unfortunately, because of COVID, makes it a little challenging. But I will say the silver lining of COVID is slowing down, taking some time at home, doing those little things that you've neglected, reading the stack of books that lay beside of your bed. I think I, I, I don't really have a three-year plan right now, and I don't have a five-year plan, but I think I'm just enjoying it right now, to, have, to be honest. I'm trying to just enjoy the moment because I think it's just gone by so fast. That's great. What I do see is that I do see you being a mayor of an oh empire. <laughs> I don't know. At the very least. Where I, live, I don't know if I can handle that kind of controversy. That's, that's a lot of controversy. <laughs> but we'll see. I don't know. I just, I'm riding the wave. I'm excited to be the president-elect for CANP, and then I'll, I'll be the president after two years. And I have a great mentor before me right now, which is the president, Patty Gurney. And we have a great team. I, I'm excited in that arena, but I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't know. I know I, I may meet the love of my life and say, forget it. I'm going to Italy. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm sure you can do that too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm a little bit spontaneous. And so I just, everything happens for a reason. I'm a strong believer in that. There are people who are put in your life for a reason and there are certain paths that you take. And so I just enjoy it where I'm at right now. That's right. Usually CNP has meeting. Uh, do you still have meetings? Uh, yeah, we have one planned actually. Yeah, we have one planned in Pasadena for 2021 in March. Now we are planning for a live attendance, but we don't know what's going to happen. We're waiting for flu season. All, all the hospitals are waiting for flu season to figure out if we're going to have another surge. So we're playing that one by ear. We're playing that one by ear. So we're just waiting and planning. But so far, we are planning for Pasadena 2021. Is there a weekly or monthly meeting? Yeah. So every chapter, I can only speak to Inland Empire because I don't know what the other chapters are doing. We have been having bi-monthly meetings. It's all via Zoom uh, because we really can't get together right now because there's not enough venues that will support a large party. So we're limited. CANP at the state level does provide pretty good webinars. And so we've been doing that right now. And that's how a, lar- a lot of large organizations are doing it because we just have, you know, too many stipulations in place to really have gatherings. But I will say I miss networking. I miss meeting everybody. There's nothing like laughing and socializing and eating dinner and with your colleagues and meeting new people. So I do miss that. For sure. I was thinking I miss that. There's and... nothing to replace the socialization, the intimate dinners and the meetings and the laughter, it's just, you know, different to the soul. So I do, it is hard. You can't find a replacement for that. Not enough ice cream for that. Cookies and cakes. (laughs) (laughs) Not enough of those. Ice cream always feeds the soul. So there's just not enough. (laughs) Right, exactly. A little bit of side topic here. What do you say to consumers out there who do not believe in COVID? I, I, I see what's happening to these patients and it's real. It is real. And I think that we are going to see, we are going to see these patients that have been affected by COVID. And what I foresee is that we are going to see the ramifications of those patients who have been affected by COVID with chronic conditions. And I think that it is important that you protect yourself and your families because we have a lot of immunocompromised people and some people don't even realize they're immunocompromised because maybe they haven't gotten an evaluation. Maybe because they're the single mother you know, who has to work two, three jobs and just don't have time to go be seen, right? Or the single father. So there's just, you just don't know. And I think that it's hard to tell with, because we're coming into flu season and we're seeing peaks and valleys all throughout California and the data is out there. 
but I think that we are going to see long-term effects. I think that people who have been exposed to COVID and have recovered, we don't know what it's going to do to them when they're in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s. We don't know. So I think this is going to be future areas of research, actually. And we will probably see new ICD-10 codes for chronic COVID conditions. So I, I don't know. But it's definitely what I see in the forefront. It'll be interesting to see how this evolves. And not to mention those who are positive but are asymptomatic, high percentage, right? right? Yeah. So definitely we're going to see a lot of research. We're going to see more and more research as our data gets bigger and our sample size gets bigger. So um, we'll definitely see what happens in the next three to five years. I think it's really we're going to see. And I don't think this is going to come to an end until maybe the end of next year. It's not wrapping up anytime soon. Yeah, I'm not too sure what's going to happen. I think that I think that things are cyclic, like the housing market. That's how I see it. I think that it's a possibility we may be in this till next year until we figure out uh, what we're going to do, vaccination, flu season, etc. But I think we're going to see big time long term effects is what I think. I think we're just um, going to see those outcomes and um, then we will be able to retrospectively say, oh, wow, this is really a big deal. This is COVID is real. And I think we're going to have all that information, but years to come. Yes. Great point. Dr. Giovanni, do you have any other things you'd like to discuss? No, I think we've covered a lot. I want to thank you for your time and your inquiry. And it's actually quite exciting. And I think that now is the time to be heard. And that I think that it is our time to get the platform and keep it. Because I think that more and more people are starting to know what we do and how we contribute in a positive manner. And so I think that we have to do the best we can to advocate for our practice. So thank you. Thank you for your time and and thank you for all those questions. Thank you very much for sharing with us your achievements in the field of advanced registered nurse practice, specifically as nurse practitioner, as clinical nurse specialist, as RN first assist. You're just an amazing person. You're so deep in so many different ways. I've gotten to know you so much for from just talking to you within this hour. Congratulations on your terminal degrees and yes. a doctor of nursing practice. I'd like to acknowledge your great advocacy work for your patients, for nurse practitioners, and for our nurse practitioner professions. And, oh, and to, thank you. For also being the president of CNP and then chapters, not only once, but twice. That's just amazing. I don't know how you have time. You're a oh. chair in the committee. Oh, You're, I don't know time. I've gotten really good at juggling. I've gotten really good at juggling and and time management and it's fun. I, I like what I'm doing. I think if I didn't like what I was doing, I would have struggles. I would have a hard time trying to get things accomplished, but I, I like it. It's fun. And I'm a multitasker. Most women are multitaskers. <laughs> so I think that just being able to have all these different things that are going on and I don't know, I just it's, I guess over time, I don't know, time and maturity. I don't know. <laughs> I just do it, I guess. Don't think about it. Say, don't think about it. Just do it. I'm just doing it. You're such a great role model. And your two daughters are very lucky to have you as oh, their mother. Thank you. 
Um, and, and, yeah. and debating them they're going back to school one of them's going to be an attorney thank you I, I feel it's just the beginning we'll see what happens we'll come back in about a year or two let's see what happens in a year or two exactly and you're welcome to come yeah. back anytime to discuss any relevant issues pertaining to the world of nurse practitioner anytime. i think you encompass everything that a nurse practitioner should be you're just empowering and you're such an inspiration to us all. Thank you so much. Thank you. And you are too. Gosh, man, you're going to make changes with this podcast. I appreciate considering me. It's been really fun. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank thank you. So before we end, I just have to do a little bit of disclaimers. And uh, we would like to say that this podcast does not substitute or constitute as a medical or legal advice. And then therefore it should not be taken as such, but instead it should serve as educational purposes only that our goal is to provide you with accurate information, but we encourage all providers to conduct their own research and use their own um, due diligence to verify and check all information. And also we encourage all providers to follow their facilities and states, regulations, nurse practice act, standard and procedures to ensure compliance with your facilities and state requirements. And the viewpoints, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely to the author and not to the author's employer, organizations, committee, or other group or individual. Dr. Giovanno, we appreciate you, we thank you, and we are so grateful that you are helping us in so many different ways. Oh, thank you. I'm excited. It's been a pleasure. It's been a great pleasure. Um, Thank you very much. At the World of NP, our mission is to empower healthcare consumers and the nursing professionals by giving them voices so they could advocate for patients and for themselves. Just like a great model for as Dr. Giovanno is, we would like to aspire and become more like her. So we thank you, everybody. Thank you, Dr. Giovanno, for being here with us. We really appreciate you and all your contributions. And we'd like to thank you to everybody who's listening and that we hope you you find information valuable as we discuss the current relevant issues. For more information, please visit theworldofnp.com. We will see you in our next episode. Thank you, Wonderful. Dr. Bano. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much.